Hello and welcome to the podcast. You're listening to Be Uncluttered. I'm Rebecca Mazzino and with me is Tara Tuttle and together we are going to help you on your journey to a life free of clutter. Hi and welcome to the show. This week I have a very special guest. We have Hannah Mason with us. Hannah was born in Bogota in Colombia and since then has lived in the United States, Australia and is currently residing in Israel. She is best known as a vitality coach, is certified in NLP, and has mentored mentored hundreds of people in shifting their mindset, speech, and actions to live with clarity and joy. She's the author of several life-changing books titled Hold That Thought, The Size of Your Dreams, and The Cash Machine. Today, Chana and I are going to have a little chat, and I'm hoping she's going to give us a bit of a fresh spin on the link between physical clutter in our homes and the mental clutter in our heads. So welcome to the show, Hannah. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I want to dive in. Let's talk about stuff, this physical stuff, this mental stuff in our heads. In Western culture, I was researching recently, our homes have nearly tripled in size in the last 50 years, which is phenomenal to think about. And yet the majority of us are still drowning in stuff despite the fact that our homes are bigger than ever. On top of all the stuff that we have in our homes, the latest stats say that one in 10 Americans also rent off-site storage for their belongings, all the things that can't fit. And all of this physical stuff is just cluttering up our lives. So I'm curious, similar to the question of what came first, the chicken or the egg, I would love to know your thoughts on whether you think the cluttered physical spaces that we've got in our home are the catalyst for our mental clutter or whether you think maybe the mental clutter comes first and that leads us to uh, surround ourselves with the physical clutter. What's your take? I would definitely put the mental clutter first. Um, I'd be so, I'm very, very close friends with a a professional organizer. I'd be so curious to see what her answer would be to that question. But I really Mm -hmm. believe the mental clutter comes first. And I think at the at the center of it all is this one belief that the vast majority of people walk around with. And that is that I'm not enough. And there's another one, which is I'm not safe. So I'm not enough makes me want to collect as many thoughts that are as secure and knowable as possible around me. That's sort of in the mental space. So mm-hmm. I want to be as absolutely sure as I can about as many, thi- as many things as I can. And so I collect a lot of thoughts and a lot of ideas around me. And in the physical space, I collect a lot of stuff. Because the more stuff I have, the more enough I feel. But it's, it's a temporary fix. You know, I- ice cream will do the same thing. And it's a really temporary fix. And the other, the other belief is I'm not safe. And they're really correlated, right? Like, if they're both, they both give us a general sense of there's something not okay. I'm not okay. The world's not okay. Uh, It's just a very unsettled feeling. And part of how we can make ourselves safe is by building these really safe homes. So if you think about the story of the three little pigs, you know, who's the pig that did the best? He's the one who built the brick house. So Mm. we're all kind of thinking of life as being like the big bad wolf. And trying to build as secure a house as we can around ourselves. 
And so the bigger the house, the more significant we feel, the more safe we feel, the more certain we feel. And this actually came up recently in a conversation I had with a a client of mine whose um, parents are survivors of the Holocaust. And they grew up in a displaced persons camp. And so that meant that like, if you think about how the opposite of safe that is, right? It's like so -hmm. many people you know are gone you own nothing. You don't have a home. You're constantly moving from place to place. You have no idea if you're going to have food. And she said that like now they're constantly uh, building as much wealth and, and as many things they curate their lives to be as secure as possible and to have as much stuff as possible. And she was thinking of it from a place of shallowness. And I was thinking, no, they're really just trying to be safe. Mm-hmm. And this desire for safety is something we can all connect to. So it allows us to be significantly more compassionate towards other people who are accumulating stuff rather than judging them as being like shallow or something. Mm -hmm. There's some really deep existential experience that's happening for all of us when we accumulate stuff. I say this as I'm looking at all my stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's, it's validating in a way, isn't it? You know, we... We grow up, we get told or we experience the world in certain ways and we, so many of us, especially from a young age, see success as not something that we can define for ourselves, but something that the world is quite happy to step in and define for us. And quite often that idea of success comes with lots of possessions, big houses, full houses, you know, all, all the things. And so I think on that path to, you know, try and be successful or, or meet that expectation, every time we cha-ching, cha-ching, bring another thing into our house, it's like, yep, validation, validation. I'm on the path. I'm on the right track. This is this is what success looks like. Um, I'm getting there. And, you know, so often we don't stop. We don't pause to think about what what success for me? What does what do I think success is? And am I walking towards that or am I getting further away from that with my actions? And I think the waters get very muddied between, you know, what we think of success, what we think of as enough and what the world tells us is enough, you know. And, you know, then you can combine the whole advertising and all of that into it. And it's it's really hard to tease yourself away from those things and think individually about what is enough for you and whether you, in fact, measure up to that or not. Yeah, there's, there's a, it's, it's really difficult to compete with Madison Avenue. So it just mm-hmm. so happens that uh, recently there's a film that came out on Netflix called Social Something. Oh, and the Social Dilemma? Yes, that one. Yes. And, um, and you and I, both of us in our professions are so deeply, you know, reliant on social media, which is simultaneously like messing with us. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, that's what's so fascinating about this film where all of these different people who work in social media and who've been big executives in social media, even helped to create some of the big companies that we all rely on are talking about how, what they, you know, what these companies do is designed to manipulate our core psychology and take advantage of it for, you know, their financial gain. And I don't mean that in like a mean way. It's just that's how their businesses are structured. And, and I just, I don't know, as soon as you started speaking, 
at the beginning of the interview, the image that came into my mind was of those commercials from or advertisements from the 1950s of this like perfect looking wife, you know, using Mm -hmm. a washing machine for the first time and how like, then your life is going to be good, right? Then you're going to be able to compete with all the other perfect looking people. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that, that I do with people is I help them to question the beliefs that are underlying all of their behavior and their emotional experience. And for me, the most poignant experience I had that was like that was walking through Heathrow Airport. Um, I was a layover there. So I was kind of walking around in circles. And Heathrow Airport has a huge, what is basically a shopping mall. And, and they have this big perfume section like you see in most department stores. And as I'm walking through this perfume section, there's this one image of a very famous, I can't remember who it is, but a very famous scantily clad model next to a bottle of perfume. And that's all it was. Like it didn't say anything. There were no words on the ad. It was just this beautiful woman and a bottle of perfume. And even though verbally there were no actual written words on the ad, that ad was telling a very rich story. Mm. And, you know, embedded in that story is if you wear this perfume, you're going to look like this. You should look like this. This is what beauty looks like. This is what this woman actually looks like in the real world. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like (laughs) that it's possible to look like this, right? All of these Mm -hmm. different beliefs are totally embedded in this image. And I'd already been working on questioning my own thinking for some years now. So my mind had already been trained to question itself very quickly. But this was kind of the fastest experience I had where I saw this image and immediately heard the words in my mind, is it true? Is the story that's being that's oozing out of this image, is it true? And immediately I said, no. And I just walked right past it. And all of the flood of emotion that would have normally come to me, which happens to most women in the West, where we feel insecure and ugly and not enough and not skinny enough and not pretty enough and we feel small, it all disappeared. And it was really cool until, you know, that was a layover on my way to the United States. And in Jerusalem, it just so happens that our city, for whatever sociopolitical reasons, there's no billboards in my city. So mm. you don't see public advertising. And I shop in the open market. Like, think of like a farmer's market. There's a big, huge farmer's market right next to my house. That's where I do all of my grocery shopping. And there's this cute little health food store wh- where I do my health food stuff. And that's it. So I don't go to a supermarket. I don't see a checkout aisle. I don't see magazines. I don't see newspapers. There are no billboards. I don't have a television in my house. And then we go to the United States and we visit our families. And our families have lots of televisions in their homes and they have lots of magazines laying around. And and just because of where they're located, I'm forced to go to supermarkets and see all of the advertising in the supermarkets on my way, you know, just through the market and then at the checkout aisle. And invariably, every single summer, about two weeks into our time there, I'll look at my husband and I'll say, am I pretty? Or do you think I'm fat? That's fascinating. Yeah. That's like a an example of an A B experiment, isn't it? You're completely removed from all of these things, including the advertising, and then you're plunged into and not just dip your toe in, like overwhelmed by it all. Yeah. It's so I think it's so fascinating 
to see how instantaneous almost your reaction is to all of that. How do you feel then when you leave and you go home? Is it like a wave of relief to be apart from that then? Um, that's interesting. Yeah, I don't think I, I don't think I notice it in like such a linear way. It's not like, oh, you know, it's not like I feel like 20 bricks coming off. But yeah, about two weeks in into, you know, being back here, um, I just notice that I stop paying attention to that stuff. And I happen to live in this really awesome, eclectic, artsy, bohemian kind of scene where there's a lot of artists and students and old people and young people. And you name the color, you name the ethnicity, the cultural background, you name it. It's all in my, you know, cute little neighborhood. And so the the thing that drives most of the people in my scene is not like trying to keep up with the Joneses because there are no Joneses. There's no standard here. The thing that drives us is authenticity. You'll get looked down upon if you're not authentic. That's really interesting to see the, you know, kind of the polar opposites and the fact that you can experience them so matter-of-factly go from one to the other and just have such a unique experience and different experience. So bringing the, this back to the some of the mental clutter, you've worked with so many people in your time to overcome obstacles that they've got. What are some of your experiences with mental clutter? What are some of the most common things that you find people people have or people are dealing with? So I tend to I tend to be living very much in what's alive in me right now. So what's alive in me right now is what, what has been coming up in the past few weeks with a number of clients all at once. And that is people spending a lot of time trying to be in other people's heads. And that's part of the same ego desire to have control and a sense of predictability and safety in the world. It's like if I can predict what everyone's thinking and I can predict how everyone's going to react to my behavior, then it gives me a sense of control. But of course, it's an illusion. Like we totally have no idea how other people are going to react to us. Mm -hmm. So I see people spending a lot of time making a lot of assumptions about how other people are going to react. So I won't ask for what I want because I already assume other people are going to treat me a certain way or um, or I assume that they're not going to want me or that I'm not going to be loved or that, that there's a whole sort of cascade of repercussions that are going to come out of me just being myself. And in order to make that assumption, in order to make all of those assumptions, I have to be spending all of my time outside of myself and in other people. Mm. It's exhausting because then I feel really lonely. I don't feel present in my own body. Like when people talk about, you know, mindfulness and presence, so much of what it's doing is it's bringing you back into your body, into yourself, into the present moment. If you're not in the present moment and you're not in your body and you're not in yourself, where on earth are you? That's so true. And I, you know, I only heard on a podcast recently that people, if given the option to spend 15 minutes alone with their own thoughts or receive a quick electric shock, something like 80% of people would choose the electric shock after over spending 15 minutes alone with their thoughts because people are so madly jamming it down or distracting themselves or numbing out from, from whatever is going on in their head. People just, they don't know themselves and they don't want to go there. And I just think it's incredible to think that people would voluntarily choose the physical pain over spending time with themselves. And it's, 
it's like an art form that we've forgotten. And you think what what will, you know, generations to come be like if we can't even be on our own or the majority of us can't be on our own for 15 minutes without noise, without, you know, visual distraction and just think. It's just, oh, it's incredible. So earlier you mentioned um, challenging people's thoughts. What, what other kind of tools do you use when you're helping people step away from the mental clutter or work through their mental clutter? What, what other kinds of practices do you use or encourage? So I'm a really big fan of inquiry. So inquiry is basically the pro- process of asking lots of questions and um, truth-seeking questions that really create a space for answers to come up. And I, I trust that people's inner wisdom is amazing and that, and that the answers will just arise if we just quiet our minds long enough to hear them. Um, and so I've, I've pulled from a lot of different places from NLP and from Byron Katie and from a bit from Stephen Covey and from Barry Neil Kaufman, a bunch of different tools for inquiry. And then for some reason, God's given me the gift that I just keep coming up with more on my own. But basically, it's helping people identify what are the thoughts that are causing your distress in the first place? Because for most people, we have an experience where we're in the middle of a circumstance and we have an immediate reaction physiologically, behaviorally, emotionally to that circumstance. And we don't notice that because it feels so immediate to us, but our brains just are so fast that um, what's actually happening is there's a circumstance and then we have a thought or a story about that circumstance. And a story is just a collection of thoughts. And then as a, re- as a reaction to those thoughts, we have an emotional cascade that comes in. And then we engage in a certain kind of behavior. Okay, let's look at yesterday. Yesterday, I got into an argument with my son. Okay? So as mm-hmm. a reaction to that argument with my son, um, I might tell myself the story that I'm a horrible mother right? Like every mom has gone through this, right? Yes. So I like that. I like this one because it's really universal, right? So I'm a horrible mother. When I believe that I'm a horrible mother, and this is true for every mother, what will happen is that my body will engage in some sort of stress response. So I will physically shut down. My body will grow tense. My heart rate's going to go up. My she- breathing's going to go shallow. Um, my digestion's going to shut down. My immune system's going to shut down. And the reason that happens is because when we believe a lie, we go into a stress response. That's how lie detector tests work. Mm. Lie detector tests are telling us that when somebody gets stressed out, that means they're lying. And so right away for me as a, as a, as a coach, if I have a client going into a stress response, I know that whatever it is they're believing isn't true. Whether I believe it's true or not is not relevant. Their body is telling me that it's not true. So right away, I go into some sort of like tension. Um, For me, when I believe that thought, I get sad. I want to crawl in a hole and go under the covers and hide and never talk to anyone again. That's kind of what happens to me. And when that happens, so I disengage, I pull away. Um, I might also get angry. I might be less nice. I'm, I'm less creative and I'm less resourceful. And the, the funny thing is when I believe a thought like, I'm a horrible mother. I think that that thought is going to whip me into shape and make me a good mother. 
I think that thought is going to help me build more connection, be kinder, be more compassionate, be more thoughtful, and be more creative. But what it actually does is the exact opposite. And this is what happens to all of us all the time. That we have all these thoughts that we think are going to whip us into shape, that are going to nudge us in the direction where we want to go, and it always ends up doing the opposite. So negative thoughts just do that. They're, they're dysfunctional. It's, a, it's an ineffective tool to get me where I want to go. And creating a space for me to question that thought and say, um, like Byron Katie does, you know, is it true? Can mm-hmm. I absolutely know that it's true that I'm a horrible mother? Or I might, you know, use one of Barry Neal Kaufman's tools. Does making myself feel bad make me a better mother? Do I need to make myself sad in order to be a better mother? And as soon as I, I ask that question, I'm like, oh, wait, is, it, is that really working for me? Is that train of logic functional or dysfunctional? Mm. And are there other thoughts that I can choose to, to plug into that space that are going to bring more joy and compassion and energy and resourcefulness into my life? And I guess, I guess part of the battle is having the courage or the strength or the tenacity maybe to pause and question the thought like that's because so often we they we have the thought and they the process just runs away from us it tumbles into something into something into something actions happen so to to cut yourself out off at the point of having the thought like how do you establish that habit when you first think I'm a terrible mother how do you catch yourself before it cascades into um, the the rest of the trail and, and what comes next? I think by asking the question, this is like my favorite thing that I teach every single one of my students. I don't remember when I came up with this question, but to me, it's it's gold. And if anybody gets anything out of this podcast, it could just be this one question. What am I believing right now that's making me feel this way? It sounds like such a simple question, but it's actually a very loaded question. It's loaded with the understanding that I am not my thoughts. There's me. I'm believing this thing. This thing is making me feel a certain way. The feeling isn't who I am. The thought isn't who I am. There's me over here. Believing a thought over there. And as soon as I ask that question, the answers, they come. If I just create a gap, the answers come and I'll notice, oh, this thought and this thought and this thought. And then I can start questioning the thoughts. But if I don't even know what thoughts are causing my distress, I'm in really big trouble because I can't question the thing I don't know. Yes. I love that. I really, really love that. That's awesome. So where, where do these thoughts come from? Even, you know, even before that, where, where are they coming from? Is this, these thoughts that, that pop into our head so often negative do they, this kind of met- mental clutter, I guess it is, is it coming from our childhood? Is it coming from traumas we've experienced, from comparison or our maybe even just our societal norms? Or is it a combination of everything? From your understanding, where do we devo- develop these thought patterns from? So I definitely think it's a combination of everything that you've said. But, it, but at the root of it, it's we... Um, are constantly trying to understand our world and make rules that help us create a sense of order out of what is otherwise chaos. So if you think about what it's like to be a baby where you're just 
looking at everything with total open-eyed wonder and you keep seeing um you know these these brown long brown things sticking out of the ground with these like little dancing green things and some adult tells you that's a tree and you're like oh and then you see another brown stick coming out of the ground but it's different that brown stick and it has different kinds of fluttery green things coming out of it and then another adult tells you that's a tree you eventually start to recognize that there's this thing called tree right that's a societal norm that we decided to call all of these things tree and that if every time you see the brown thing sticking out of the ground it doesn't really matter exactly what the the leaves look like it still falls under the category of tree and then one day you walk up to a bush and you point to it and you say tree and an adult corrects you and says bush and you're like oh okay what's the difference between a bush and a tree and you're trying to get a sense of order in the world and if you couldn't do that Imagine, this is something that comes up in my mind all the time because we don't own a car. We live downtown, so we don't need a car, except for when we go on trips. So once in a while, I rent a car. And I'm always fascinated by how, you know, every time I get into a car rental, it's a different car. But I know exactly what to do. Mm -hmm. Even though it's a different wheel, it's a different seat, it's a different color car. How do I know how to do that? Because my brain has done a really good job of creating rules that this round thing, I can put my hands on it and that way I can manipulate, you know, what happens to the tires. And that, you know, like I can do this, I can move into this thing with the fabric and I'll sit and that's called the seat. And as, like as soon as you sort of get that you need to have that level of judgment of the world in order to work within it, you get that, like, of course, our minds need to do this. Our minds need to create rules. Our minds need to create understandings. So let's say I'm three years old, and I'm a perfect example. When I was five years old uh, in Colombia, five men came into my house with guns and threatened to kidnap my sisters and me. And, yeah, pretty nasty. Whoa. So we ended, up, we ended up fleeing the country. And in that, through that experience, there I needed to process that experience in some sort of way. And there are a lot of rules I could have chose, chosen to, to write. One of them could, could have been men are bad, mm -hmm. right? Like I see so many men with guns doing mean things and I could have come to the conclusion that all men are bad. Yep. Easy right? rule, file easy it away, use that for reference in future. Exactly. Right. And so you know, one of the things that, that we do now as adults, like if you think about your ability to, to use a knife or to use a pen or to fold laundry, you're really adept at it. Your skills have become really good. But the first time you used a knife, you, you really fumbled with it. The first time you tried to write your name, it looked like gobbledygook. So your ability to gain understanding about the world today, like if you encounter a situation like that, you'd probably come to the conclusion that those particular men are dangerous, but that life in general is okay. Right? Some adults mm -hmm. don't do that. Sometimes even as an adult, you might be scared of all men after a situation like that, right? But, but you could see how as an adult, you have more complex global understanding of the world and you're not stuck in this like myopic, very narrow view. And so, so many of the rules that we write are written when we're children. And children are as good at making rules and at understanding the world as they are at using a knife and drawing and doing karate. 
I've never thought about it in those terms, but it makes such sense. Like kids are kind of dumb. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) that's what it comes down to. They're kind of dumb. And I was watching my kids chop salad vegetables tonight, and I'm like, that how we can't put that on a taco like that. That's like half a cucumber in one slice. What are you doing? (laughs) And they're like, well, mum, you've been chopping for about 30 years longer than we have. I'm like, okay, yeah, fair point. Exactly. Right. So it's like, okay, you put up with it because like it's a taco, right? Yeah. But one of the things that we do is we often like have so much reverence for children and children are they're, they're beautiful creatures, right? Their souls are just so much more present and it's such a pleasure to be with a child. But, but we don't look at a child and say, wow, this is an expert karate you know, master and, or, oh, this mm-hmm. is an expert chef. We're like, no, they're really inept. But somehow when it comes to beliefs, we look at children and they're like, oh, they're so wise. And it's like, no, they're actually really dumb, right? <laughs> like, and as soon yeah. as we can do that, then it gives us so much more permission to to say, okay, we wrote a lot of rules when we were kids, and a lot of times we did the best we can. Yeah. In order to protect ourselves, but that doesn't mean it's going to work forever. You know, the the rule that it's not safe for me to speak up because my alcoholic father might smash me across the face. That's a really good rule. Mm-hmm. When you're 18 and no longer living at home, that rule stops being good. Yes, because it's funny, you know, I'll talk to people who are new mums, for example, that are doing the best they can and they're like, oh, I feel like I'm, you know, I'm just not getting it right. And I'm like, you are doing as much as you can with what you know, you know, and when you know better, you'll do better. But it's so funny because as kids we lay these foundations for our future thought patterns and we get older and we know better, but we don't do better. Like we don't rewrite them. We just keep replaying the old track over and over again. And I just, I love that. I feel like I've got light bulb above my head right now. This <laughs> insight into like, what? yeah, question. Okay, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be able to achieve anything for the next few days because <laughs> I'm going to be like pausing every five seconds to question that thought. And where does that come from? And where does that come from? But so I'll, I'll give you I another practical it. example of how this applies to so many people. So um, one of the things that happens in the modern world is that as, as young children, we get exposed to God or the divine, I'm just going to use the word God just to make it simple, right? It's like whatever divine forces come up for people. We get exposed to them when we're very young and very often in very like cutesy and pedantic sort of ways. So if you think about like a Santa Claus and the Easter bunny and, you know, looking at like a nativity scene or, um, or people talking about God loves you, you know, these like you know, or your God's your father in heaven. And then there's like the image of the old dude on the cloud with the staff, right? Mm-hmm. Which is straight out of Greek mythology. That's Zeus, right? So we have these like very cutesy, pedantic images. And um, a rabbi of mine, he, he told a story of when his son was like, I don't know, like six or something. And he was drawing a picture and there was this like purple blob thing in the sky, And one of his siblings looks at him. He's like, what's that purple thing? And the kid says, that's God. And the sibling who's much older is like, you can't, what are you talking about? You can't draw God. Nobody knows what God looks like. And you know what the kid says? 
they will by the time I'm done. <laughs> and, um, right. And so we all have our version of the purple blob in the sky, mm-hmm. either because somebody gave it to us from the outside or because, you know, we're five or six and that's what we're cognitively capable of. We just take ourselves and we put ourselves up and make ourselves bigger because we can't imagine the infinite. It's too complex. And, and then for many people, they never talk about God again until they hit their late teens, early 20s. And they start wanting to explore that higher part of themselves. And they look at the purple blob that they came up with when they were five. And they say, I don't believe in God. And what they mean is, I don't believe in the purple blob. Because they never engaged in any sort of discourse so that their development and understanding of the divine would match the development and complexity of their mind as they aged. Mm. And so they look at religion and they're like, oh, that's dumb. Of course it is, because you're looking at something that belongs to a five-year-old. You haven't been willing to face the much more complex, rich, mystical traditions that are in every religion ready to engage a much more complex, higher mind. That's so fascinating. It, uh, I love it. You're definitely challenging me. I think I'm sure everyone that's listening is going, yes. What picture did I draw when I was five? When I was you know? five, yeah. Yeah. So, okay, let's let's swing back around and tie some of this mental stuff back to the physical stuff. Because so when I first started life coaching, I used to go and work with women in their homes. I had I never had any intention of being a professional organizer or dealing with physical stuff at all. But these first few women I worked with, once I entered their spaces, I started to see this link between the mental stuff and the physical stuff. So a lot of my early clients might have blocks around success and what it looked like for them and achieving that or what their purpose was. Quite a few of them, you know, kids had gone back to school and they were like, right, what am I on this planet for other than to to raise a family? And some of them even, you know, were wrestling with where happiness came from for them, what the source was. But then I would walk into their homes and think, no wonder you cannot think straight. No wonder you can't process this stuff. There is not one space in this home where my eyes and my mind can rest in the house without feeling overstimulated or overwhelmed or burdened. So really organically, I started decluttering with these women, partly for me because I couldn't, I felt so claustrophobic in the space, but also because... (laughs) I was like, I'm not going to get the best of me if I'm focusing on the Play-Doh from three weeks ago that's on the end of your table (laughs) while we're trying to write goals for your future. So it started really organically, but then I almost did myself out of a job with some of these women because they said, oh, once we cleared the physical stuff, I feel like I can think so much clearer and, you know, I don't, I don't need you anymore. And I'm um, okay. <laughs> I don't know if this is, is a success or not for me. Like, do I tick this box and say, I help this client or not really? Cause they don't need me anymore. So I want to talk to you a little around this idea. So when you feel overwhelmed, burdened, overstimulated with the mental stuff in your head, the thoughts, the ideas, the, you know, 
toxic things that go around in our minds. Do you agree that a good place to start is the physical decluttering or would you suggest that you go do the mental decluttering first? That's really fascinating. I've never really thought about that question. I think that they're both true. I think that the um, the the three week old play doh isn't a physical object. It's a physical object that's gift wrapped and honey coated, and with so much, so many thoughts. The reason the three week old play doh continues to sit there for three weeks is because it's it's got a lot of thoughts attached to it, like. Um, cleaning up my house is too much. I don't want to look at that. My kids are a mess. I can't handle it. I'm overwhelmed by my life, right? I could imagine all of those thoughts sticking mm-hmm. to that Play-Doh, so to speak, obviously. This is all a metaphor, but not mm-hmm. exactly. The reason that people's stuff overwhelms them is because when they look at it, it's loaded. So right now I happen to be looking at a scarf that I got as a gift from somebody I love. And I don't use the scarf very much. So I feel Every time I look at it, I want to get rid of it, but I can't because then that means, right, I have a story that tells me if I get rid of the scarf, that means that I'm not showing this person that I love and appreciate them. Mm-hmm. And then that makes me feel guilty. So so the scarf isn't just a scarf. Yeah, we, we talk a bit on this show about sentimental clutter and aspirational clutter and the weight that things carry, that it's not just, you're not just letting go of last year's notebook or diary you're letting go of existing in the last year and your thoughts for the last year and your goals and your journey and you feel like you're throwing out a a piece of you rather than just a book (laughs) that you wrote a few thoughts down in you know there's so much more attached to it so do you think then given that stuff is loaded with these thoughts that getting a handle on the thoughts first is the the best place to start I don't know. I think it depends on the person and what they choose to do. I think either of them is a good way to go. But I think Mm -hmm. as soon as you engage in the process of decluttering, by definition, you're also engaging in thoughts. Mm. And as soon as you um, decide that, okay, I'm going to work on my thinking. So then it gives me more mental space to then deal with the clutter. Like they're, it's, it's kind of a chicken and egg situation that they're, they're both true. And as long as people are choosing to do one of those two things, the other one I think will be a natural outgrowth. And I I don't know if I could say what's, you know, what's ideal or what's right. I think it really depends on the person and what feels the easiest first step because Mm -hmm. anything is good, right? Either physically decluttering or questioning your thinking is good. So do the one that you feel like doing first. Yeah. Get some momentum. Yeah. In any in any direction, pick a direction and go. <laughs> Basically, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Other than your scarf, you've already confessed about your scarf clutter. Um, you've made some pretty hardcore international moves in your lifetime. So, how do you keep the physical clutter at bay in your life, or or don't you? It's oh my gosh, time. during my international <laughs> moves, that was so easy. So when we left Colombia, I was allowed to bring one object with me. I didn't have a choice. It was a <gasps> teddy bear. His name is Cookie. I still have him. He's kind oh. of a, he's, he's a tattered mess today, mm-hmm. but I still have him. Okay, so that's one. 
And then when I moved to Australia, so I actually moved with a bunch of stuff because the management consulting firm that hired me um, paid for my move. So I even went with furniture and stuff and, a new, you know, like a whole bunch of suits that I bought with my bonus and all these things. And then I decided to put all those things in storage and I was going to come to Israel for two months because I'd never engaged in, um, in spiritual textual learning. I hadn't taken the time to learn much about my tradition. So that was kind of a spiritual journey for me. And I figured two months is all you need to get a Jewish education. <laughs> you might have heard that we're the people of the book. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, that was, I was really off. Um, and after being here for a few weeks, it became very clear that I needed to stay for the year. And then I would go back to Australia. But within a few months, I decided that this is where I wanted to live. So all of the stuff that I left in Australia in storage is now, I have no idea what happened to it. It's like floating in the ocean somewhere. Um, and so I moved here with basically a couple of suitcases. So um, the international part was very easy. It's more the day-to-day -day life, you know, a accumulating clothing and not wanting to get rid of it and things like that. But I happen to be, um, I feel like every marriage has a pack rat and mm -hmm. I am not the pack rat of my marriage. Thank God. So I'm really good <laughs> at getting rid of stuff and of teaching my son who is by nature a pack rat, but twice a year we go through all of his stuff and I say, do you need this? Do you not need this? And I make it a very efficient process for him so that he gets used to not getting too attached to stuff. So that's really nice. Yeah, right. And so other than the pausing and questioning your thoughts as they pop into your head, do you have any other practices or tips for us in managing mental clutter and anything that you do specifically to stop it creeping in other so than, you know, avoiding TVs and advertising? <laughs> so I think – um, this, you know, the practice that I recommend to my students and my clients is to spend half an hour a day um, doing the following. The first thing you do is you think of a time, whether it's that day or last week or when you were six, that um, you experienced any sort of emotional distress, that you just felt yucky. And think about that time and just write about it. Just freestyle for like three minutes, four minutes. And then look at what you wrote and try to call from that um, the beliefs that are either overtly stated or that are kind of lying under the surface. That process is what I call a rant. And then you pull the thoughts out of the rant and build what I call a thought bank. And now you have a thought bank full of thoughts that are ready for exploration and pick one of those thoughts. And go through the process of inquiry. I recommend uh, Byron Katie's The Work because it's the easiest to, to learn and to teach. And you can go to her website or you can learn about it in my book also. And you just question your thinking. You ask, is it true? Can I absolutely know that it's true? How do I react when I believe this thought? Um, how would I be without the thought? And then the most important part is when I'm willing to look at the opposites of the thought, which is where truth tends to live is in the opposite of the thing that I'm believing that's actually leading me into a lot of distress. So if I want to find peace, I need to look at the opposites. And often there are many opposites to a given thought. And that process can take 10 minutes. It can take half an hour. It depends on how slowly you want to go through it and how meditative an experience you want it to be and how deeply attached you are to the thought. So you could question a few thoughts in a day. You could question one thought a day. But the more you do it, 
the more your mind will become activated to um, naturally question its thinking. My, my closest girlfriend who I learned this material with, she went through a journal, like a journal a month. Wow. And she, she just became obsessed with the process because she saw that this was the key to her freedom. Mm-hmm. And, um, and she just qu- questioned thought after thought after thought. And, and it's just, she's just, just such a happy person. It's such a pleasure to be around her. Um, I had this moment a couple of years ago when I just sank into a really, just really depressed place. And I said the scariest, darkest, most shameful, sad things to her. And she just sat there in total calm. And she was able to do that because she knew that all the stuff I was sharing with her, they're just thoughts. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing to be scared of. And she knew me beyond the thoughts. And that's who she was sitting with. And it was so liberating to be held in that way. That, it was beautiful. That's a really powerful image. I think we should just hold that image and now go forth into our day. So I really want to thank you, Hannah. You've Oh, so many aha moments for me. I feel like I need to go do some journaling now about this chat to process, <laughs> but it's been brilliant. So I will put all of your resources, links to your website, your social media and your books and where you can get them, all of that stuff in the show notes. So if you're listening and you would like to find out more about Hannah, where she hangs out um, and where you can get more of her, Um, head to the show notes page on our website and it will all be there for you. Is there a particular place you like to hang out? Bearing in mind you've just watched The Social Dilemma and are now (laughs) freaked out by social media. Are you a... You mean like online? Yeah. Um, So I've got a Facebook group and and I'm I'm pretty active in it twice a week. I do like a a show, I do an interview or I do a, a chat with my audience and... I try once a week to do an Instagram video. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. Um, But mostly I like to hang out in nature, to be frank. (laughs) I love that. That's so good. Um, Or or teaching my classes. That's like my favorite thing to do is to teach. Okay. Well, we we will make sure we've got links to everything so people can come and find you when they're looking for you. Thank you so much for your time today and your insight. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. And we'll catch you again next week. Thanks for joining us. We'd love it if you'd leave a review or tell all your friends about us so that they too can be uncluttered. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us at beuncluttered.com.au or on social media or on our own websites at clearspace.net.au and basklifecoaching.com.